If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And as you're turning there, let me just remind everyone that today is the uh, third Sunday in our Global Missions Emphasis Month. That means our focus is going to again be on God's aim to reach all people groups on earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Last week, uh, we looked at the inspired Bible for mission, and Luke 24 was our launching pad into that subject. Today, Luke 24 will be our launching pad again, but when we take off, we're going to eventually land in John's gospel and spend the bulk of our time there looking at the triune God of mission. The triune God of mission. Did you know that the church's mission to the world flows from the eternal trinity? The church has a mission to the ends of the earth because all three persons of the one true God have a mission to the ends of the earth. That's what I want us to get this morning. So let's launch into this from Luke 24. And all I want you to see here is that what we learned last week about God's plan in Scripture isn't disconnected from what we're going to talk about this week regarding the Trinity. We saw last week that God's plan in Scripture has Christ at the center and missions as the overflow of that center. But what Jesus also helps us see is that the the overflow to the nations happens only because the mission of the triune God Himself. So let me read it to you and point it out. Started in verse 44 of Luke 24. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed With power from on high. It's that last promise there in verse 49 that I want to catch your attention. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's a revelation of the Trinity in one sentence. The Father promises, the Son plans to send that promise. And the promise is then described with power from on high. And who, and who does that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is Luke's second volume to 
His gospel. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And watch what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. It's missions. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So right there we're seeing something very significant about the Trinity. The Father's role in promise, the Son's role in sending that promise, and the Spirit's role in coming as that promise to empower missions. All three persons of the Godhead united and involved in worldwide missions. Or even better, worldwide missions happens because the triune God himself has a mission. Now here's where I'm going to land us in the Gospel of John for the rest of our time because John makes this mission of the triune God very explicit. It's one of the major themes interwoven throughout his Gospel. So what I'd like to do is walk you through two uh, big observations that will help you see the triune God of mission, I hope. And then I want to show you what that mission means for our church as a mission, as we are involved in mission to the world. And let me just warn you up front, your unglorified brain may be in serious danger for the next 15 minutes. So when you start talking about the Trinity and trying to wrap your mind around all the glories bound up in the Godhead, you've got some serious headaches coming. But I think the hard thinking is worth it. So here we go. First of all, the triune God's mission precedes history. The triune God's mission precedes history. As you read through the Gospel of John, you get the sense that Jesus is on a very specific mission. Again and again, he says his father sent him into the world to accomplish his work. Uh, One of his favorite titles for God the Father is the one who sent me. Everything Jesus does is for or from the one who sent me. But every once in a while we get glimpses of a deeper truth about Jesus' mission. And that truth is this. Before time ever was, the Father gave the Son a mission to accomplish. This comes out in a number of ways. For example, if you go with me to John 6, 38 and 39, page 892, if you're using a pew Bible. In John 6, we read this. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The origins of Jesus' mission preceded his coming into the world. He came to do something because he already received the mission 
from the Father. His Father had given him a people, and he expected the Son to do everything it would take to bring those people into glory. We find the same truth in chapter 10 of John, the Good Shepherd passage. In verses 14 to 18, Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep. And then he's going to rise from the dead for the sheep. He then intends to gather all the sheep, not just from the Jews, but also from the nations. He's going to gather all the sheep that he died to save. And all this, the Bible says, is part of the charge, verse 18, the charge that Jesus has received from his Father. Again, a set mission is in place. The Father has given the Son a people, which are called here His sheep. And the Father has given Jesus a charge concerning those sheep. That charge is to lay down His life for the sheep, then rise from the dead for the sheep, and then gather all those sheep into one fold. So Jesus' coming is the result of a charge He was already given. And then consider John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17 is amazing. We basically, John 17 is basically where we get to eavesdrop on the inner communion between the persons of the Godhead. The Son crying out to the Father. And Jesus prays like this in verse 2, verses 1 and 2. Father, the hour has come... So we're dealing there with a predetermined plan already. This hour that's been set in place by the Father, it's here, it's come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then listen to the basis he gives for praying this way. Since or because you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What's his confidence that the Father is going to answer his prayer? His confidence is that the Father has already given him authority over all flesh. This authority is something he granted the Son in eternity, and he did so in relation to a particular mission. The Son was to use his authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those the Father had given Him. Even if they're not even saved yet, within history, there's some sense in which the Father has already given them to the Son in eternity. And the Son's mission is to come and ensure their salvation at all costs to Himself. And by the time you get to verse 24 in his prayer, we find that the entire goal of his mission is this. That the people whom the Father gave the Son may be with Jesus and the Father to see the glory the Father has given the Son because the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Let's put it together. 
The Father loves the Son before creation. And because He loves the Son, He chooses to give the Son a people who will enjoy the Son's glory as the Father has enjoyed the Son's glory. But the only way that these people will be able to enjoy the Son's glory in full is if the Son agrees to save them. And being forever one with the Father, the Son agrees to save them. Just as a historical note here in church history, this mission of the Father and Son is often referred to as the covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption. It's a covenant between the persons of the Godhead that happens quite apart from creation. Quite apart from creation. And this covenant between the Godhead then governs all the other covenants in your Bibles. Like the, like the covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant. That overarching covenant governs everything that's happening in those covenants. So what we're seeing is that missions isn't something that originated with the church. Rather, the church originated because God had a mission. It's a mission the Son agreed to even before the creation of the world. Paul brings this up as well in Ephesians 1, verse 4. He says, God chose us in Christ. The Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world. It was a plan for the fullness of time, Ephesians 1.9 says, which God had set forth in Christ, in His Son. And again, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we weren't saved, we're told, because of our works, because of things we did. But because of the Father's own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Jesus before the ages began. Or we can even think about the marriage uh, when, when Paul's talking about marriage in Ephesians 5 and says that this is the mystery of the father's, uh, of a husband's love for his wife is speaking and referring to the mystery which between Christ's relationship with his bride. And he's pointing us back to Genesis 1 and saying that Adam and Eve's marriage in the garden was representative and to reflect something that happened when prior to that. The wife, the bride that God himself gave to his son. That will inform your marriage ethics in the public square with all the talk going on. The triune God's mission precedes history. It rises not within history, but outside of history within the eternal persons of the Godhead. Here's a second big picture observation. The triune God's mission is accomplished in history. The triune God's mission is accomplished in history. <clears throat> In other words, it wasn't a mere plan 
within the eternal persons of the Godhead outside history, each person then played their role to enact the plan in history. And that includes the creation of history. The creation of history itself through the Son. John 1, 3, all things were made through Him, through the Word, through the Son. So the enactment of this plan included the creation of history through itself, through the Son, and also for the Son. You want to know why the world was made for the Son? God had a, ma- a plan, a mission, to give His Son a people. It was created for the Son, Colossians 1.16 says. All things in heaven and on earth, whether invisible or, in, or whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers or authorities, all things were created through the Son and for the Son. That means the whole universe was created in the first place because the Father had a mission to to accomplish that involved His Son becoming human to represent and save the people God gave Him. The whole universe was created in the first place because the Father had a mission to accomplish that involved His Son becoming human to represent and save the people God gave him. God created history to center it on the Son, and then he entered that history by sending his Son. Now, the question you may be asking is, does that mean God created the world through Jesus and for Jesus, knowing that the fall would happen? The Bible's answer to that question is yes. Did God create the world knowing that Adam would rebel and render all humanity guilty in sin? Yes. Sending the Son into the world to die for sinners was not plan B. It was the only plan all along. That doesn't mean we aren't responsible for our sin or that God doesn't hold us accountable. The Bible clearly teaches elsewhere we are responsible for our sins and God does hold us accountable for all of it even if He's sovereign over it. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We may not understand all the mysteries of how God's mission in eternity squares with human responsibility in history, but this we do know with absolute certainty. God put a plan in place to save men like me before I failed Him. God loved me before I sinned against Him. And therein lies the only hope that I might be made new, unworthy as I am. He foresaw my falseness and my pride, and He chose to love me, to give me to His Son, that I might see His glory forever. You sang it earlier. Before God spoke and it was light, before men fell in sin's dark night, 
the Lord set forth redemption's plan that grace might find this wretched man. That was our song earlier. Comes from the Bible. But how does God actually accomplish the mission in history? Well, let me outline how all three persons of the Trinity accomplish the mission in history as they play their unique roles in redemption. And all this is from the Gospel of John. I'm not going to give you every Bible reference. The manuscript will be on the line later. If you want them, you can look them up then. So just listen. This is all from the, all from the Gospel of John. Just listen to how each... Father, Son, and Spirit play out their play their roles in in accomplishing their mission in history. So to begin, we have the work of the Father. The Father creates the world through the Son. And despite the world's rejection of him, the Father chooses to love the world by giving up his only Son. He then tells the world how he intends to give up his son in the Old Testament scriptures before he actually gives him up. He intends to give him up as a sacrifice. And then at the appointed time, the father assures us of his love for the world by actually sending the son into the world. And once he's In the world, his son is in the world. The father then gives all things into Jesus' hands, bears witness that Jesus is his son, gives the spirit to Jesus without measure, and then shows him everything he's supposed to be doing along the way, even when that means it will cost Jesus his life. The father then offers up Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice to take away sins and to liberate all his children from slavery to death and the devil. And by doing so, the father glorifies the son, showing that he alone is worthy to pay the price and he alone is worthy to be raised and seated at the right hand of honor and all worship. Then we have the son. Everything the Son does, He does in unwavering submission to the Father. The Father sends Him into the world, and the Son comes. The Father gives Him words to speak, and the Son speaks them. The Father gives Him works to perform, and the Son performs them. In everything the Son does, He pursues not His own will, but His Father's will. Not His own glory, but His Father's glory. Everything about His life, only pleases the Father, even to the the degree that everything the Son is and does reveals the Father perfectly to the watching world. To see Jesus is to see the Father in Jesus. That even includes seeing the Father's love in Jesus. The Father's love for the world is seen in the Son's submission Because the Son willingly lays down His life for those who don't deserve it. The Son comes as the Good Shepherd to save His Father's sheep by dying for them. His passion to glorify the Father in saving His people costs Him His own life on the cross where He spills His blood. But He knows that's not His end. 
No, the Son has authority to take His life up again. Neither sin, death, nor the devil can keep Him in the grave. After three days, He takes up His life again, appears to His disciples, and gives them the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to person number three in the triune mission. The Spirit. What is the Spirit's role? Well, both Matthew and Luke tell us it was through the miraculous work of the Spirit that a virgin named Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus. But John begins his testimony a bit later in the story, at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. The Spirit helps John the Baptist identify Jesus as God's Son. He does this by descending and remaining on the Son just like the Father had promised in the Old Testament. A Messiah would come and be anointed with the Spirit, and that would be the sign that God was bringing forgiveness to His people and renewal. The Spirit then stays with Jesus throughout His earthly ministry, filling the Son without measure, so that the Son in turn gives the Spirit to those who come to Him. Then once the Son completes His work and God glorifies Him back to heaven, the Spirit comes at both the Father and the Son's request. They will not leave their children on earth as orphans. So the Father and Son send the Spirit to their children, to the disciples. The Spirit then continues the mission of the Father and the Son. He is another helper. He indwells God's people. He teaches them the truth. He empowers the disciples to speak, glorifies Jesus through their own words, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, causes people to be born again, and then brings them to Jesus for living water so that dead and parched souls are transformed into rivers of eternal life even before the Son returns to call them out of the grave. That's how the triune God accomplishes His mission in history, according to the Gospel of John. The Father, Son, and Spirit on mission to enact their plan to save a multitude for God's glory and for their everlasting joy. To put it shortly, the Father chooses them, the Son gets bruised for them, the Spirit renews them and produces fruit in them. Thank you, Shailen. Now, if this is all true, that God planned a mission before history and then enters history to accomplish it, and He does so as a trinity of persons from beginning to end, what might this mean for our mission to the world? One thing it will mean is this, knowing God rightly as Trinity should compel us into missions. Knowing God rightly as Trinity should compel us into missions, and in particular, His mission to the world. I say this because there's um, a tendency in our circles. We are invested in sound doctrine aren't we? We should be. But there's a tendency in our circles for us to study God, even His his existence as Trinity. We want our confession of the Godhead correct. 
And we should. We want to articulate sound doctrine on paper and in a classroom. And we should. But the tendency is to do that all the while overlooking this particular God's mission. To know God fully isn't a matter of being able to state propositions about His attributes or His persons. The devil can do that. That's what James tells us. Devils, demons can do that and they tremble. Knowing God truly includes devoting all your energies to what He's about. And He is about mission. To know Him as triune, and even more, to know Him as triune redeemer, and not to be moved to mission is an indication that we do not know Him rightly. It is devilish to take pride in refined theology that doesn't move you to rescue people from hell. The Father is seeking worshipers right now. John Chapter 4, verse 23. The Father is seeking worshipers right now. Some of them are in your neighborhoods. Some of them are on the south side of Las Vegas Trail. The Father is seeking worshipers now. He sent His Son to die for the forgiveness of their sins. And He has given the Holy Spirit to empower us, to empower you, right now to reap a worldwide harvest. This is the mission that existed in the Godhead before creation, and it is the mission He's accomplishing now, with or without us. So check yourself. Ask yourself, is my study of God compelling me into missions? Right? How is it going to happen, ladies, when you start First Peter together this Thursday night? How is 1 Peter going to compel you into missions? How is it happening in college and seminary? When you look at the Trinity and see the Father loving and giving, and the Son obeying and suffering, and the Spirit filling and mobilizing because this is what they have planned to do from before the foundation of the world, how are those truths moving your hands and feet to go after the Samaritan woman and the people on South Las Vegas Trail and the 1.6 billion Muslims and the 950 million Hindu peoples of the world? If our, knowledge and, if our knowledge of God and our pursuit of holiness is missing mission, it isn't true knowledge of God and it isn't tr- a true pursuit of holiness because it fails to represent the true God who is on a mission. Another thing this will mean. The Father, Son, and Spirit's mission should shape our mission. Their mission shapes our mission. I get this from chapter 20 of John's Gospel. Verses 21 to 22. Jesus says there, 
This is after he's risen, he's risen from the dead. He comes to his disciples. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is what I meant earlier when I said the church's mission to the world flows out of the eternal trinity. Not only did the trinity plan to rescue us before the foundation of the world, not only did the trinity actually rescue us within history, that's why we're sitting here, the trinity also commissions us into the world into the world that He created originally for the Son. And God does so on this basis. So so God does this commissioning on this basis. We go as the Father sent the Son. That means we need to take a good look at how the Father sent the Son if we're going to know our mission. When you're flipping through reading in the mornings or in the evenings or with your kids or whatever, and you're reading of Christ, you need to be taking notes on what that implies for your mission in the world. We need to take a good look at how the Father sent the Son. For example, He sent the Son into a dark world, and knowing that it would cost Him His life, the Son still came. He sent the son to the prostitute, and knowing the slander he would receive when she washed his feet, the son found her and forgave her. He sent the son to peoples of all ethnicities and social classes, and knowing the spectacle it would make of him, the son entered their cultures. He sent the son to invest in the poor. And knowing the hardship it would bring, the son still invested. That's how we go into the world. We enter the darkness of people's lives, not to participate in the darkness, but to rescue people from the darkness. In the same way, the son did not hesitate to meet us in our darkest of sins, we cannot hesitate to meet others in theirs and speak the word of deliverance to them. We cannot pretend to be Christian or a church if this sort of entering people's lives isn't characterizing us. Jesus entered our wrecked and broken lives in a broken world in order to save us, and our mission as a church must be the same. We are to be characterized by entry into people's lives, not a sit-back-and-wait-till-they-come-to-us sort of mentality. Our depravity didn't stop Jesus from coming to us, from entering our lives to rescue us. The world's depravity cannot stop us from entering their lives as well. The Father also sent Jesus into the world to gather. So He sent Jesus into the world to go to them, but he also sent Jesus into the world to gather them. Not just to go to his sheep, but to gather his sheep into one fold. That's the fold of the church. 
Our mission must be the same. We cannot go to people, preach to them, watch them repent, and then walk away. Here's a trap. We must gather them into the church. It's in the church where Jesus exercises His care for the flock. He gives them leaders and teachers. The Spirit gives people to minister to one another, to bear one another's burdens, to hold us accountable to the truth. Some of us grew up in this sort of background that it, where it was, uh, it was fine to tally up another convert without ever helping that convert into discipleship of a local church. May it not be so of us as we take Jesus' word to the nations. When people respond to the gospel in positive ways, let them know that Jesus has bought other sheep and he's gifted those other sheep to care for them. Drive, Drive them in your car to care group if they don't have one. Have them in your home. Sit with them on Sunday morning. Show them how to find Luke 24 and John 20. We go to people in the world and we gather people from the world. This is how the Father sent the Son and how the Trinity shapes our mission. The triune God's mission also informs our proclamation. It informs our proclamation. It is part of preaching Christ to the world. Salvation is found in no other message than a message that is triune. Now, please hear hear me rightly. I'm not saying you need to walk up to people on the street and be sure they affirm the Nicene Creed before you help them pray. But I am saying that what we tell the world must be Trinitarian. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. That's Trinitarian, folks. God the Father sent the Son into the world that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. Nobody gets eternal life apart from the Spirit who is the living water that Jesus Christ gives to those who come to Him and believe. That means we always proclaim the Son as no one less than the one true God. If Jesus isn't God, His cross does not save. Our only message to the world is the message of a triune salvation. It originates with the Father, it's mediated by the Son, and it is applied by the Spirit. All three persons distinct but equal in divinity and united in purpose. No other message brings God glory and reveals the Son as He truly is than the triune message of the Bible. It is integral to the Great Commission. When we make disciples, part of that discipleship is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This triune message is unique among the religions of the world. One God in a trinity of persons? We don't have to travel very far where that message is offensive. There are Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses who have laughed at me on my doorstep because of this message. 
Judaism and Islam think it's the height of blasphemy. But the Bible says it is good news. Uh, Some of you will soon be going out to engage Muslim people with the gospel. The Trinity will be a crucial part of your outreach to those who adhere to Islam. Islam teaches that God is is a solitary monad with unity only. No unity in a trinity of persons, just unity. Allah is one, they say. He has no need of a son, they say. Much less a son who dies by crucifixion. God's favor on someone is evidenced by success, they say. But listen to this from Robert Letham. The Islamic doctrine of God is centered on power and will. There is virtually no room for love. The kind of love the Quran attributes to Allah, and it does so rarely, is a love for those who are just, who purify themselves and fight for His cause. It has no conception of a prevenient love for sinners or of the Supreme Being Himself providing the way self-sacrificially for those sinners to return to Him. What he's saying is that in the religion of Islam, God cannot be relational and therefore love cannot truly exist in Allah. Love is something one person has for another. If God is a monad and only a unity, He cannot be loving. So when the Quran says Allah is loving, it's using the language of a love to describe His tyranny and actually to hide His tyranny. But that's not the case with the Bible. God has revealed Himself here as one in three persons. He is love because Father and Son have loved one another for all eternity. And it's out of that eternal, self-giving love for one another that redemption flows to sinners like us. So take your Muslim friends to the Father's mission of love in the Son while praying for the Holy Spirit to cause Him to be born again. That's the message we take to our Muslim neighbors and it's the message we take to the world. And we take that message with humility, which is another way the Trinity shapes our church, should shape our church as we go out on mission. The triune God's mission should produce humility in our mission. It should produce humility not just because we find ourselves amazingly saved. (laughs) That should be enough. But because that's what our God is like. Think about it with me. Every point in the mission of God in every point of the mission of God, 
Each person of the Trinity is acting in total humility. The Father doesn't spare His own Son. What does He do? He gives Him up for us all. His only Son gives Him up for us all. The Son doesn't do His own thing. He doesn't seek His own glory. He seeks the Father's glory. And He submits Himself to the Father's will, even when that means His death on the cross. And the Spirit, too, is full of humility. He doesn't draw attention to His power. What's His business? It's to constantly be pointing people to the Son. To shine the spotlight on Jesus. We go to the world with the same humility. Because this humility characterizes the God of our salvation. Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we trust in Jesus... God gives us this humility. I mentioned earlier that one of the roles of the Spirit is to come into the lives of believers to indwell us. When when the Spirit is in us, the Spirit of Jesus is in us, and the Spirit of His Father is in us, producing this humility. So, we look to the interests of others as better than our own. We give up our lives to bring others to the Father. We submit to the Father's will even when it's uncomfortable. We center everybody's attention on Jesus with our words and deeds, not ourselves. The goal isn't to win arguments, but to win souls through humble speech and selfless deeds that reflect the true God to a world who does not have Him. We don't win with force. We win with humility. The Son will eventually come and execute judgment. With great force, the earth will tremble. The skies will be reeled back like a scroll. Followed by legions of His Father's holy angels. But that day is not yet. And that day is also not ours to take up. Until then, we trust Him and entrust ourselves to His way of humility. One more thought. The mission of the Trinity should give us great hope for missions. The the mission of the Trinity should give us great hope for missions. All that the Father gave the Son will come to Him by the Spirit. The Father chose them, the Son already died for them, and the Spirit won't miss a single one of them. No matter what obstacles or language barriers or cultural differences or social strongholds or evil sins are in the way, God will get them the gospel by moving His church to enter their lives. That they might hear the gospel and that they might come to Jesus by faith. The unity of the persons in the Godhead means the plan will not fail. There are no emergency meetings called in the pers- with the person to the Trinity. None. 
It will be accomplished. Their plan to rescue people from all tribes, tongues, people, and nations will happen. The unity of the persons in the Godhead means the plan cannot fail. A multitude of people will come and will be present, will be present at the throne. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says. And the day will come when these people will join in Trinitarian worship that will never end. Revelation 22 says, There will be the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the new Jerusalem, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So make it your prayer every day that God would use you to increase the volume of worship among all peoples of the earth. Pray for it. I don't know how many days I've prayed for the Lord to give me opportunities to speak into others' lives. And I get knocks on the door within hours of praying. Or I meet somebody. And a lot of times what that usually means is if I'm praying about it, the Spirit has made me more alert to what's always been present before me to begin with a people who are lost and in need of the gospel. So pray every day that God would use you to increase the volume of worship among all peoples. He will hear you and He will answer you. The mission of the Trinity guarantees it. 